You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. Friday, September 8th. This is The Christian Commute. I've got Kool-Aid. It's my last bottle of water. I gotta go buy more. Em- I gotta go buy more bottled water instead of just filling up the empty bottles, which would be more economical. You're riding home with me. I have a full show, and yet another apology. I had a technical failure last night. A technical failure of my computer equipment. My battery on my laptop wouldn't charge, and it wouldn't hold a charge plugged in. So I had to close it down. And plug it up overnight to hope that it that it fully charged. I tried to upload the show from Tuesday and Thursday, and I failed. So hopefully I'll be able to do it tonight because I'll be stuck at home because my wife has to take my daughter to the uh, after-hours doctor to the urgent care because she has an abscess in her ear piercing. My twins, they're ten. They got their ears pierced about. Uh, I don't know, 10 weeks ago, and I guess an abscess in a doctor's bill is what I get for allowing them to wear the devil's jewelry in their ear. (coughs) You guys, do you know, do you know that there are certain super conservative ladies who won't pierce their ears? My mother-in-law thought it was a sin to get her ears pierced, and she didn't get them pierced. And my wife didn't get hers pierced because of that. Until she was, after I met her, which I was fine with her not having her ear pierced because that's less jewelry for me to buy. But anyway, anyway, she eventually got him pierced and the devil had his way and everybody's got their ears pierced and now one's infected. How this will affect my soccer lineup is my main concern because the other twin is my goalie and she's not going to want to take her earrings out. Anyway, I got a lot to manage uh, when I get home. I was going to do my other job, my second job, but I can't do it. I'll have to wait till my wife gets through with the urgent care. But I should have time to, number one, watch the Cartersville High School football game online, and number two, upload three episodes of The Christian Commute. And speaking of football, it's Friday in the fall, so that means we have Brother Williams' Alabama pick before we get into the show proper. Brother Williams says Alabama 30, Texas 23. And count them up, y'all. That's three touchdowns and three field goals for Alabama. And then two touchdowns and three field goals for Texas. It's, It's an odd score pick. I'm going to tell you this. I think if Alabama wins, if Alabama wins, they'll win by more than one score. That's what I think. But uh, I'm not going to make Alabama a home dog, and neither is Brother William from Mississippi. So that's uh, that's today's Alabama pick. For what it's worth, and that game comes on at 7 o'clock tomorrow. And I'll be watching it from the comfort of my own home. Last week, I was watching it from the comfort of of a padded seat in Bryant-Denny Stadium because my friend at work who gave me the tickets paid the extra money to get a pad put on his seat. And here is 
here is a golf clap for you, friend at work, because my butt enjoyed that. Because those seats can get hard after a while. All right, with the full tank of gas, let's get to the full show. Today's show topic is physical bodily resurrection. Physical bodily resurrection. And you'll understand a little more why I chose that particular topic today, not just because I couldn't think anything else, uh, after we do the Bible chapter review, which is Matthew 24. We're still in that. I have a question in the inbox about ancient Christian practices and ancient Jewish practices, all the way from my favorite, sarcastically, state, Florida. That's where the question's from. But if they try to make me wear a mask, that's where I'll go. So uh, in the free state of Ron DeSantis and the Floridians, not making people wear masks. The mask stuff is starting up again. So I think I've already had COVID this time around, so maybe I won't get it again. Who knows? Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 through 35. Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 through 35. Jesus continues. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. He's, he's talking about the signs of the times. He's, he's given us whole discourse, an Olivet discourse. He's given this whole discourse about the destruction of the Jerusalem and then tribulation to come and the end of the age and his return. Two different events, by the way. And he says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So the end can't come. That's the, when the stars come falling from the sky and the, the moon and the sun not giving their light and the Son of Man coming in the clouds... That's not going to come, and that won't come, whenever it does come, until after the destruction of the Jerusalem and the tribulation that he's referring to. No stone being left unturned. The, what we know is Titus's destruction of the temple, but what they were saying, hey, look at the temple, and Jesus says, not one stone's going to be left upon another here. He said, after that, then you can expect the final end to come. And he says, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. That's the first things he talked about. So if you, if, if you think of it this way, if you think about the, the, the fig tree, I guess everybody back then knew how fig trees bloomed. I have, I have no idea how to look at a fig tree and tell that it's about to sprout leaves. And like, oh, I'm, I'm not the farmer's almanac, but I guess back then they knew. I guess they have a lot of figs in Middle Eastern culture to this day. I'm from apple country, so maybe I could look at an apple tree. But he, he says, learn the parable from the fig tree. He's teaching a lesson from it. The branches are tender and puts forth leaves. All right, so when, when it's sprouting those leaves, you know that summer is about to come. 
That has to happen before summer comes. Summer's not going to come before that happens. So the things happening before that generation passes away that they're going to observe, that's like the fig tree getting tender branches and growing leaves. They're going to see it. And then the end can come at any time after that. What's going to happen at the end? Well, heaven and earth will pass away. And look at what Jesus says. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Nothing would have been more permanent to them, and may, I guess to us, than heaven and earth. That's it's all of existence. In the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's a permanent thing. And Jesus is saying that permanence is over. The world will end. But my words are not going to pass away. In other words, his words about the end of the world are going to come to pass. And they took heed, and we best take heed. And we'll talk a little more about taking heed and what that looks like, both for them and us 2,000 years later, Lord willing, on Tuesday as we continue the Bible chapter review of Matthew 24. But for now, let's go to the inbox. Do you have a question about Christian theology or apologetics? If you do, you can write SethDunn88 at gmail.com SethDunn88 at gmail.com The Christian Commute is your theological roadside assistance. You can also dial 470-315-0875 and leave me a message. I have, including this question, two more in the inbox. So I have one to get through Tuesday, but I need some more. So hopefully some people will listen over the weekend, listen on Monday, and send in more questions. This question comes from Martha in Florida. Martha in Florida. And she says that she's read about or heard about how in the first century... During Roman times, when the, when the Romans were still ruling and the, the Christian church was just getting started, she's heard that Christians would go rescue infants from the trash heap who were going to die or be eaten by animals. She wants to know if that's true, and she wants to know if the Jews did it too. So... I guess that's I guess that's two questions, Martha. Martha, but it's a two-parter. So yes, yes, that is true. That's just that's not an old wives' tale, or, or some kind of anecdotal story. Ancient history does bear that out. If you study early Christianity, you will learn that yes, Christians uh, did that. I have a book somewhere at my house called Backgrounds of Early Christianity, written by Everett Ferguson. And it was a textbook assigned for, I think it was for Encountering the Biblical World. It was either through, for New Testament Survey or Encountering the Biblical World. I don't remember which class. It's not about books of the Bible. It's just about the world at that time when the New Testament was being written. And Roman culture back in that day, remember they didn't have Planned Parenthood for abortions. Also, they didn't have sonograms. So you could think now, uh, if somebody wanted a baby, but they only wanted a boy, let's say, and they didn't know 
what the baby was going to be. And they're going to keep the baby if it's a boy. And they're going to expose the baby if it's a girl. This is in ancient times. Well, they, they didn't have sonograms. Like nowadays, if somebody wanted to do that, they would use a sonogram. They'd see the baby was a boy, not a girl. And they would kill the baby right then through an abortion. They didn't have a DNC procedure. They did not have the same kind of abortion techniques we, we have now. So if there was an unwanted baby, you had to wait till the baby was born. Now, I, I'm not saying that there weren't abortifacients back then. There were, but I'm talking about if you got what we'll call a 50-50 pregnancy. If you don't know if you want the baby yet. So they had to wait and see. So we have accounts from Roman culture where the pater familius, that would be the father of the family, he's the one who would decide if you keep the baby. And there's a letter, I've got it in one of my textbooks somewhere, where this guy is writing his wife and he's saying, uh, I know the baby's due soon. If it's a boy, keep it. And if it's a girl, expose it. So what is exposure? All right. So when an unwanted Roman baby would be born, they would take the baby to basically to the dump, to the trash heap, and they just set the baby there. Now they wouldn't smash the baby's head in or anything. I guess that they feel that was too brutal, but they just go leave the babies out. And if somebody wanted the baby, they could come get it. Maybe somebody wanted to make a slave or a servant out of that baby and they might do that. Maybe some childless couple wanted a baby. I don't know. They might do that. But they're just they're up for grabs. But people who didn't want their babies would expose them. So you take a newborn infant out, you just set it on the trash heap, and he would eventually die of exposure to the elements, not having any warmth, uh, not having any breast milk. He'd just die. He or she would just die. And that was a common practice. You haven't seen that in Western society because of Christendom. And then in Roe versus Wade, you didn't see it because, well, you could go to the abortion clinic and, and get the baby killed when it was just tiny. And nobody had to see a crying baby at the trash heap. But the Romans who didn't want babies didn't have that luxury, if you will, that privilege to sin and be evil and wicked, if you will. So yes, Romans did expose babies, and yes, Christians would go and save the babies. They would take and adopt them, not as slaves and servants, but just as people in the household. So yes, early Christians would do that, Martha. That's true. And you might ask, well, why don't Christians do that anymore? Well, because nobody sets babies out in the trash heap anymore as an accepted social practice. Every once in a while you'll see in the news that somebody finds a baby, an infant in the dumpster and they'll track some teenage girl who did it or some drug mom who did it and then they'll put that person in jail because it's illegal to do that. But back then it was okay. Now the second part of the question is did Jews rescue the babies like the Christians did? And I have to say I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I've never read any records of that, and I would say I wouldn't. I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think they'd make a practice of doing that because the Romans were their enemies, and they were a different people. So the Jews were a set apart people 
and I don't know why they would go to the trouble of saving Roman babies. Plus, if you think about Jews, they tend to live in their own little enclaves. Even to this day, you go to New York City, there'll be a little Jewish enclave. But back then, you had the diaspora, which were the Jews all over the Roman Empire, those who had not returned to live in Israel after the Babylonian captivity. But you did have Jews in Jerusalem. So if you're thinking about who lived in Jerusalem, it was Jews. Yes, there were Romans there ruling over them, but the society was a Jewish one. And exposing babies would not have been a Jewish practice, given that the Jews, culturally, viewed children as a gift from God knit together in the, the, the womb. So that would not have been a Jewish practice. So I doubt there was a lot of baby exposure going on in Jewish communities. Now, whether the Diaspora Jews were doing that when they were around more Hellenistic culture, I I don't know. I just don't know, Martha, so I can't answer that question. But I do know it was a common practice of early Christians to rescue those exposed babies. And if there is a parallel today, you can see that the people who go out and picket abortion clinics and try and evangelize the people who are going in there to kill their babies and try to beg the people not to kill their babies they'll say don't abort your baby I'll take it there's there's videos on the internet of people say don't abort your baby I'll take it now nine times out of ten they abort the baby anyway but you see a lot of Christian ministry or parachurch ministry trying to offer sonograms to people trying to offer uh, prenatal care to people offering uh, formula and baby clothes and diapers and women's resource centers and, and crisis pregnancy centers where I live. We have Bartow Family Resource. It used to be resources. It used to be called the Women's Resource Center, but it's one of these crisis pregnancy organizations. They have other services now too, like counseling and whatnot. But that's that's what they do, and they try to save babies that way because they don't want to see babies murdered. And if you think, well, how does that fall under Christian religion? Well, isn't true religion, according to uh, the book of James, to do good to widows and orphans in their distress? So can you find a more distressed orphan than the baby put on the ancient Roman trash heap? And that tells you a lot about the morality of ancient Rome that you were not really accepted as a member of the family even though you were a crying little baby human being until the head of the family accepted you. And people might sit here and wonder, like, well, why would they do that? Well, I went to Chili's today and had baby back ribs. And, you know, it's a, it's a lot to spend for lunch, but it's Friday and I went out. But most, last night, I went to Burger King after soccer practice at a 25% discount on the app and I fed myself and three of my kids for less than $6 a piece, I think. And it was real easy to get to. I didn't have to do any work to get the food. I just got it and it wasn't that expensive. And my daughter is going to go to the urgent care tonight to get her abscess and her ear fixed. And... That's going to be $75, which is a lot of money, but I'm not going to miss it in the grand scheme of things. So all that to say is 
taking care of children is a lot easier now than it was then. Starvation in our Western society is not a very real worry. Now, there are hungry people out there. I see the commercials during the college football game. One in so many Americans are hungry. This is a little girl, and she's sad because it's school is over, and it's, she's not going to get another hot lunch or lunch at all until school starts back, and she gets free school lunch. I know people go hungry. Then they'll get three square meals a day. But ain't really nobody starving to death. I mean, you can live off ramen noodles. But back then, people would have to worry, like, man, I might starve to death. Our whole community might starve to death. So that's why they had to be, didn't have to be, that's why they were like that about accepting babies or not. Oh, I already got three girls. Nope. Can't have any more girls. I'm just going to have to give the I got three girls. I'm going to have to give them away with three dowries. I can't afford that. No more girls. Give me a, you know, I can, I can take a boy. He can, he can work in the fields more. That's how they thought. And that's not a Christian way of thinking because a Christian way of thinking is we're made in the image of God and life is precious and we do not murder those babies. We just have faith in God to help get us through. So thank you for that question, Martha. And speaking of live babies and live bodies, let's talk about the resurrection of the dead. For those of us who uh, either die of old age or even babies who get murdered, there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. That is an eschatological reality. That is something Christians look forward to. And if you look in 1 Corinthians 15, you see that it is an integral part of the Christian religion. And Paul's talking about the general resurrection and a hope there. So Jesus talks about people who deny the resurrection of the dead, the coming general resurrection of the dead. Because they think, well, it's just preposterous for there to be a resurrection of the dead. And he says, well, if there's no resurrection of the dead, well, then what about Jesus? Because he's the first fruits of the resurrection. And if Jesus isn't resurrected, then we're still in our sins, and we're most of all to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus Christ after his death on the cross is just the first of many resurrections to come. We're all going to be resurrected in the same manner in the general resurrection. And that's not something we tend to think about a lot as Christians because we're not Jesus and he's really super extra special, isn't he? He's God. He's the God-man. He died for our sins. But he's also the first fruits of the resurrection. And we're going to live a bodily life after death due to a resurrection from the dead uh, just like he did. So Jesus is alive and we have eternal life too if we're in Christ. And obviously, that resurrection of the dead hasn't happened yet. Go dig around in a church graveyard if you don't believe me. Uh, Don't really do that. You'll get arrested. Now, why am I bringing this up today of all days? Well, because we're sitting here in Matthew 24, and we have to consider the heretical eschatological view that is preterism. Because preterism or preterists, take this entire discourse in Matthew 24 as by now having already happened. So preterism is a 
doctrine historically was developed by a Jesuit counter-reformer. Now, what is a counter-reformer? Some of you guys might not have heard of that. Remember the, the Reformation? Was it about 500 years ago? You guys remember that? No, it was more longer than that. 600 years ago? It was 22,000? No, it was 500 years ago. Remember the resurrection? Or not the resurrection. The Reformation about 500 years ago. Martin Luther and all that. It was a big deal. Well, then, after that, there was a counter-reformation of the Roman Catholic Church trying to defend itself and its doctrines against the encroachment of the Reformation. Because not only was the Reformation theologically opposite or theologically threatening to Roman Catholic belief, it was threatening of their power and authority. So if somebody out there starts coming up with anti-Baptist doctrines, I'm going to, well, I want to answer those doctrines because I want to contend for the truth. But at the end of the day, if people believe them, it doesn't make my church any less powerful. But the Roman Catholic Church was a hugely powerful organization back then. Okay, they And they kind of held that over the heads of the kings and the rulers. That you're not higher than us. you got to answer to the Pope. So when there's this Reformation, now all of a sudden you have kings and rulers who are like, well, we think we want to be Protestant. So what you had was counter-reformers arguing against the doctrines of the, Re- the, the Reformation. And one of these counter-reformers came up with preterism. Full, what we call full preterism. Partial preterism, as I've mentioned before, is the idea that some of this already happened. Like a lot of the, like maybe this whole, uh, like 99% of this Olivet Discord has already, discourse has already happened, but the final resurrection is still yet to come. A full preterist views the coming of the Lord. And remember, we have the advantage of looking back. So Jesus is sitting here speaking in 30 AD. Matthew is being written before 70 AD, before the destruction of Jerusalem, most likely. And if it was written after, well, he was still speaking before that happened. But now you have theologians and historians looking back, and they, they're seeing history. They, they know what happened. And the preterists are saying, the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, which is a day of judgment, was the destruction, the final destruction of Israel and their temple, and God's rejection of them and his acceptance of the church and you know them being scattered. And the coming of Christ's kingdom was that destruction. So now the kingdom is here. And it's here. That's it. All the eschatological prophecy is completely fulfilled. So you can see, hold on a minute, guys. The resurrection of the dead hasn't happened yet. And some preterists are turning that into a metaphor, and you, you see the problem that you have there. So that's why it's so important when we go over this and there's a temptation to take a preterist reading you have to say, well, hey, wait a minute. There's other things going on. And you, you think about a book like Thessalonians. you got First and Second Thessalonians. And you can tell from reading those books that Paul and the early Christians were expecting an, imis- an imminent return of Christ. 
They're expecting it within their lifetimes. And why shouldn't they? Because the fig tree is ripe. It could happen at any moment. And remember, Thessalonians is written before 70 AD. So you have a lot of the Bible finished before 70 AD. Really, and I'm using the, the, the dates of conservative biblical scholars, people actually believe the Bible is true, you don't have a lot of biblical books written after 70 AD. You've got Revelation written around 90, probably John, John's Gospel around that time. But you got the rest of the Gospels that are probably happening around or before 70 AD. Same thing for a lot of the epistles. We think Hebrews was written before 70 AD because the writer of Hebrews is referring to the temple like it's still there. That's, that's how we know. Because if it was written after 70 AD, the temple wouldn't be there. So preterists, they have, they have the view that all the books... I think of the Bible, especially Revelation, were written before 70 AD. So everything that's going to happen in Revelation in their mind has happened. And these things, since they've happened, well, some of them got to be metaphorical, like the resurrection of the dead, the sun and the moon losing its light, stars falling from the sky, stuff like that. And they'll take it in more purely... Uh, apocalyptic terms where it's just representative of something. So on the preterist view, we really don't have the blessed hope of a bodily resurrection. It kind of cuts the legs out from under our, our blessed hope, doesn't it? So that's why it's very important for you, even if you don't have a very robust and concrete concretely formed eschatology. Maybe you don't know if you're pre-mill or a-mill. Or maybe you're, you're sitting there thinking, well, do I want to be at my pre-mill, historical pre-mill, dispensational? What, what about the timing of the rapture? You know, there's all of these things, all of these arguments for these different eschatologies. Post-mill, throw that in there. And maybe you haven't decided like, which one you believe yet? You're just not sure. Because it's stuff to come and you're, you're just not sure. But what you got to be sure of, 1 Corinthians 15, is the resurrection of the dead. Because that's the end of it all. That's us resurrected in the holy city in the new Jerusalem. That's, that's our eternal life as Christians. So you better have, even if you're unsure about all the A-mill, post-mill, pre-mill, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, is there a rapture, is there not a rapture, or is it, is it pre-mill, uh, partial preterism, I mean, you name it all. Progressive covenantalism, here, how about that one? Or if you're not sure, and you're still trying to figure it out, Fine. But you better have the resurrection figured out. Or you leave yourself susceptible to deception from all kinds of heretical groups. Like preterists. Oh, you, might, you may never meet a preterist. But I'll tell you who you will meet. A Jehovah's Witness. The quote-unquote faithful slave 
We'll talk about the faithful slave later when we get there. But by the way, that's what the watchtower refers to itself as the faithful slave. And think about how the watchtower rejects the idea of the resurrection. But I don't want to step on the other show. I'll leave it hanging right there. We'll cover it when we cover it. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Lord willing, we'll be back with you again Tuesday. As always, God bless. And as always, remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.